Welcome to On the Continent, your definitive guide to the week in European football. I'm Dotton Adebayo. I'm Andy Russell. And I'm Nikki Bandini. On this edition, first blood to Inter in the Champions League semi-final derby. Nikki was in the place to be with a golden ticket. Also, Napoli are crowned Italian champions, finally. Will they be able to keep it up next season? And the game of the season in France, plus the end of an era in France. So, Nikki, 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 how lucky you were to be there. All we could do was enjoy on the telly. What was it like in the stadium? Yeah, I mean... We're very privileged in this job that we do, Andy and I, and and we I think we both know that. But this is one of those games that really makes you feel it. An extremely difficult um, stadium to get into last night in terms of acquiring a ticket and and being there was was a huge privilege. It was it was extraordinary. Dot. The atmosphere was um was was really um I don't know if I could say it's like nothing I've experienced before, but I haven't experienced many like it. Certainly by by 5.30 p.m. locally, so it's 9 o'clock kickoff locally, um, the, it was already packed outside San Siro. I don't mean like a few people gathering. I don't mean like for the quarterfinal against Napoli where there was a queue already at the gate. This was just like it was already about to kick off. There was people outside um, having their drinks, having their food. Everyone wanted to be there as soon as they could and, and make the most of it. And you just have that, that feeling, I guess, the tension that you get when you've been waiting 20 years to play your local rival in a European semi-final and and inside the stadium the stadium is is like a normal level of sort of hustle and bustle an hour before kickoff it's busy and it's 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 buzzing but there's a moment and I think this is I've experienced it most in Italy I'm, I'm very aware there are other countries where ultra culture sort of imposes timelines of how cheers happen in the same way but I've experienced most in Italy and as a contrast to living in England and going to football games in, in England there's a moment where it's almost like the ultra say okay go like this is the time we're going to start and you get this burst of sound which at San Siro when it is 75,000 people is so overwhelmingly loud it you feel like it's going to knock you over it was so so much volume and then you get this back and forth between the two ends where there's almost sort of each each taking its turn to to say something and then the closer you get to kick off the home end is just louder and louder and then you get the the scenografia the incredible choreography with the devil and um it, it was really really something else even by the standards of of that stadium and 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 games there it was it was the most sort of on edge almost I felt before a game in a long time even though you know neither of these teams is is my team um and uh and it was a real privilege to be part of that it was one of those rare occasions where we sitting at home Andy uh, felt some of that. Okay, it wasn't the same. I'm not trying to say it was the same, but it was as close to being the same feeling because it bled through. What Nikki's saying there mm. bled through the TV into our living rooms. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And it's funny, in, in terms of the impact that had on the game, I mean, it's it's been framed in some places as very different from the other semi-final, And it is because, of course... It will be different when Manchester City get Real Madrid back to Manchester next Wednesday, a game that I'll be at. And it will be different because it's obviously the same venue. But the fact that all but 7,000 will be Inter fans, as opposed to last night, mm-hmm. 
um, Nikki was talking about the red. That's a massive difference. And it, it struck me, Nikki, that Inter were terrific in this in this opening part, and we'll, we'll come to that in a in a minute. But Milan, I think, have learned on the job so quickly for a young side in the Champions League, as we've we've said before. So they were good last year and probably deserved to qualify from the group, even though they didn't. But it felt feels to me a little bit like Pochettino's Tottenham in 2018-19. The second season where they grasp it and run with it is quite similar to what Milan are doing at the moment. That They look more experienced than they actually are. But this was an exception. I don't know if you can say they were cowed by the atmosphere, but it, it, it looked that way in that opening period. Yeah, it's, it's funny actually you say that, Andy, because I, I, I've sort of been pondering this actually ever since my... Um, my own podcast co-host Mina Rizuki said this on Twitter and, and I've been reflecting on it, you know, pointing out that actually Napoli had a really fast start against Milan in the quarterfinal here as well and mm. just didn't get the goal. The difference was that Kvaratskhelia didn't stick it in the net in the first minute and how different that tie could have gone. And I think perhaps there is an element to which actually even being at home and having that sort of moment of um, of expectation and... and uh, um, and tension could be too much for them because they did sort of look all at sea for a little bit, didn't they? I mean, the second goal was, it was clever build up by Inter. I think Federico Di Marco is a player I feel like I haven't spoken about enough given how well he's played recently at, at fullback. And I think Lautaro Martinez is dummy to make that extra yard of space for Mkhitaryan to run through. It's all really clever, but it also looked so easy. And, um, you know, the, the the other goal, the first goal, it's a question for whether this is Pioli's decision or whether it's um, a miscommunication. But the fact that you end up with Calabria trying to mark Edin Dzeko, it's just, it's not right. Like that can't, that's not a battle you're going to win, um, which is exactly what Calabria said at full time. How do you expect me to, to, to mark this guy? He's twice my size. I, I, um, I do wonder if you're right there, that there's something in a lack of sort of composure. And I also think, I don't want to sort of, necessarily go into this first because Inter deserve all the praise in the world but it's true what you're hinting at there which is that actually you've kind of got two cycles hitting each other here where for Inter this looks and feels like the end of a cycle they've overspent on their budget they can't afford what they're paying their players at the moment you've got ownership who are trying to sell up and can't afford to invest in the club but right now this team has got depth and quality because it was built to win the league a couple of seasons ago Milan are a young team at the beginning of a cycle that even yesterday we got the news that um, Rafael Leao has agreed a five-year contract extension. Now, of course, his absence is one of the huge plots of this game is that you haven't got Leao and how much difference does that make? But the fact that you secure him for another, well, on paper five years, but in practice, you'd think him signing a new contract means he's at least staying for one more year and then who knows in football, but you're you're securing that asset. Um, it, It suggests, again that this is the beginning of a story for Milan rather than the end of one. When you talk about Inter there being this um, very expensively financed house of cards that's prepared to collapse and is win now, it's a bit like 2010 Inter, <laughs> don't you think? Yeah, there's there's some truth in that. And you know what it was another 2010 parallel that popped into my head last night, Andy, was there were so many things that were special about that um, team that won in 2010, but one of them certainly was just that when you looked at Inter team, even though Mourinho was in charge, even though they beat Barcelona by being defensively solid, it was an embarrassment of attacking riches, right? It was Samuel Eto'o mm. 
not even getting back centre forward because you've got Diego Melito at centre forward. You've got Wesley Schneider behind them. You've got Goran Pandev as an extra piece. You've got so many elements that you can use in that attack. Now, this Inter is not that Inter. I don't think we're yet ready to compare them to the treble winners. But the difference between coming into this game, Simone Inzaghi going, oh, you know, Lukaku scored three goals and got three assists in the last three games. But actually, I'm going to stick with Dzeko because he did so well against him in the Supercop and he's done so well in these European games. He's having a great season. And I've already got Lautaro Martinez, who's the fixed point. And hey, if I need it, I've also got Correa. Maybe my opinions on Correa are a bit less impressed. But but still, it's, it's, an, it's an embarrassment of options. Whereas Milan don't have really anyone who can come in and uh, and pick up for Rafael Leao. So we've had this tweet from Marco Serie R and he asked, do you think Dzeko gets the credit he deserves on the European stage? Good question. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a great question. I, I find the Dzeko story so fascinating. I was talking about this to people at the stadium last night even. I, I remember watching that um, Champions League quarterfinal against Barcelona with Roma in 2018. And in my head at the time, that felt like the Edin Dzeko swan song. Like he led this incredible comeback from 4-1 down and they knocked out mm. Barcelona and, and he then scores against Liverpool as well, almost takes Roma to a Champions League final. And you thought he's had this great sort of career and, and here's his European moment that he's having. And I think I was perhaps being a bit sort of overdramatic in that thought because at the time he was only, I guess, 32 um, but still, you would not have, I think, anyone guessed in another five years' time he'd be here in a Champions League semi-final as the sort of key figure in, in an attack. And not looking... I mean, what does 37 look like? 37 is younger than me, by the way, but 37, as a footballer, you you think it's, it's, you know, not many players get there and get to play at the highest level still. And he doesn't just look like he's sort of clinging on and he's doing the sort of wise old hand thing or 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 sort of playing that sort of I guess slightly more uh slow moving number 10 role that you see um some players move into he looks nimble he looks lean he looks athletic he looks like someone who who is still light on his feet and and, and able to to move in those attacking areas in a really effective way he was brilliant um in this game he is obviously um benefiting from the thing I already mentioned, which is Inter's options up front. He doesn't have to play every game. They are rotating him and Lukaku, which means they both have fewer games in their legs than they could do at this time in the season. Um, but yeah, I think he's someone who has been brilliant at the highest level for such an extended period now and probably does deserve more credit for that. And his game has aged really well as well. That's a huge part of it. I mean, you pointed out, um, and his wife, um, Simone Inzaghi is the coach and not us I suppose Nicky the fact that th there was quite a lot that would have recommended picking Lukaku and Lautaro before the the, the game because um, they've looked brilliant together recently you think particularly in the second half against Lazio in the well we'll come on to it in a bit in the Napoli title party that didn't quite happen like 10 days ago the second half of that, Laut uh, Lukaku was completely transformed when Lautaro was came on. And the two of them together are so incredibly convincing. It can briefly make you forget about Dzeko. But actually, um, Lautaro and Dzeko clicked together really, really brilliantly as, as, as well. And he made that point afterwards, didn't he? After the, after the game about having that extra breather from having Lukaku up their sleeve, which, as you say, won't be something they 
have next year? And will they even have Ed and Dzeko? Because they, they need him to take a pay cut. Yeah, what happens next year is is a great unanswered frontier and it goes all the way up to Simone Inzaghi. Will Simone Inzaghi be the manager next year? I mean, you could say that about both clubs, actually. I think it's extraordinary that you've got a European semi-final um, with two clubs who nobody expected at the start of the season to be in a European semi-final and both managers haven't got secure futures because, as we've talked about before on the podcast, the battle for the top four is really fierce in Italy right now at the moment in Terra fourth, but they're only two points ahead of, of Milan in fifth. So... Who knows on all of these questions? Inter do desperately need to cut costs. They're losing money and they're trying to sell the club. But there could even be a new owner this summer and, and, and that could change everything as well. So I think a lot of unanswered questions in terms of Inter's future and, and what this tie can mean for them going forward. You touched on Rafael Leao and how much it means for the future of, of, of Milan that, that he'll still be there next season. I mean, he was a huge miss in this, wasn't there? There's just no getting around it, right? even from the opening bits of the game where Dumfries gets to have a go at Teo Hernandez. I mean, in, in a weird way, without being a particularly defensive player, Leal works as protection for Teo, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, there's a word in Italian that gets used a lot when it comes to attacking, which is profondità. And what, really what it means is that sort of getting in behind a defence. And I think when you take Leal out of this team, it's always been true. You take the layout out of this team and they, they lose some profondità. They lose some ability to get in behind an opponent. And interestingly, in this tie, it felt to me like they sort of almost grabbed the little bit of it they did grab came when Origi came on, who's not someone who's had a good season there at all. But it showed how much they'd been, they'd been missing that ability to, to, to just go direct. Now, the tie has become so much more complicated for them on that front anyway now because they're 2-0 behind and you can't play fast break football when you're 2-0 behind Inter. When you look at the um, average position that Inter took in this game, they were pretty deep for the whole game, actually. They gave up the ball, which they don't normally do in Serie A. They're normally a team that likes to play with possession. But because of the game state, they were able to. I expect at the start of the second leg, Inter will go for a killer blow. I don't think they're going to come into the second leg and just try to park it. So I think there will still be opportunities for Milan to, to find some spaces to try and stretch the pitch. But without Leao, your ability to do that is is greatly diminished. There is still Brahim Diaz who can do it. There is still Teo Hernandez who can do it. But I think that was that was the great sort of lack in this Milan team was was that threat to go beyond. Giroud is great, and it was Giroud who famously turned around the derby on the way to winning the title last season. Si è girato Giroud. Giroud on the turn that's the song that's the, the the thing which is still celebrated um in by Milan fans but asking him to do that without other things going on around him in a tie you're losing 2-0 it feels like a monumental ask Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If I had an extra hour in the day, I might catch up on the latest football news, take a lovely walk with my dog Sammy, or maybe interview someone using an orange peel and a broken iPhone. You know, normal journalism stuff. But it's not always easy to prioritise our time, and that's where therapy can be an extra helping hand. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Untangle any unneeded worries and start to value your time for you. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ramble today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ramble. Let's talk about Napoli now, because as Andy's already said, they kept us waiting. They kept us waiting at the altar and waiting and waiting. But finally, they have become the uh, Scudetto champs or the winners of the Scudetto this season. Third Scudetto ever. First two were with Diego Maradona. So this is the first Scudetto post-Maradona that they've won. Uh, 33 years in making. How how much, I mean, I saw the celebrations, by the way. So the whole city of Naples was partying, even though they didn't win it at home. How much does it mean to them, if we can extrapolate from that? Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I can even ever explain how much it means to people, because, of course, the only people who really, truly understand how it feels, the people who experience it, the ones who, who lived in Naples. I think it was really... Um, visible i think the the sort of the, the the snippets and the scenes that have been shared all around the world of course the fireworks which have been going on for weeks anyway but then sort of hitting this sort of um peak with and everyone's seen the videos i imagine where you're, you're sort of being driven down the street and it's just like it's it's like it's constant it's like you can't look anywhere for even a fraction of a second without seeing another explosion it's like it's it's just a constant sort of um lighting up of the sky that doesn't stop and and the all the sort of very local brilliant visuals like the 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 land boat i don't know how to describe it the boat on wheels <laughs> going through the town the party boat it it's it's going to be one of the the greatest and most memorable summers probably the most greatest and memorable summer of lots of people's lives that's happening in Naples right now and um and i think it's a moment that again it's hard to sort of fully explain without going to Naples and, and seeing it what I mean when I say it's a very superstitious and religious city because those two things smash together in this in this bizarre sort of um, mix of bizarre is the wrong word but a very unique mix of of what is religion and what's superstition and that's how you end up with what look like very Catholic shrines but to a non-religious figure Diego Maradona 
um, all feeling so natural. But I think that for a lot of people in invested in the mythology of Maradona and the mythology of his almost saint-like status in that city, it almost did feel impossible that it would ever happen again. Sure, we won the title twice because there was Maradona. And so people thought this would never happen again in their lifetimes. And for lots of people, it didn't, of course. It's been 33 years. Um, but for those who did, it's like a, a, a sort of, well, a once-in-a-lifetime joy that came around a second time. And for those who didn't, who grew up for three decades in a city where there was this sort of overarching mythological figure, what a moment to get to have of their own and to get to have their own story written as well. So where do you think it went right then, Nikki? Because no one would have predicted this at the start of the season. I have, we've discussed on here, I have my doubts whether they'd make top four really at the start of the season mm-hmm. because they, they lost a huge amount of experience in uh, Dries Mertens, Koulibaly, Insigne, who was that, loved son of the city and that's before we even get to Fabian Ruiz he's such a great player and then you have this situation of of total unrest where the club despite some of these players being you know clubs that have really um touched the fans particularly in the in in the case of Mertens for example not only um the 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 club's top scorer of all time surpassing Hamzik and Maradona but someone who really connected with the city and connected with the people and Spalletti's up on stage in front of some fans at a training camp who are really quite angry a couple of weeks before the season starts. And they're haranguing him and he's got to answer the questions that the club should really be answering about, are those players still here or have they actually left? You know, there was no (laughs) announcement made on the expiration of Merton's contract, for, for example. So how do you get from that point to creating this one-for-all, all-for-one situation. Clearly, a lot of it's to do with Spalletti. Mm-hmm. But you, you've spoken about it before, the fact that uh, Ozimen and Raspadori are, are best mates, despite the fact that Raspadori is being kept out of the team by Ozimen, who's been their, their totem. He scored the goal that got them over the line in Udinese. He scored the winner in the title party at the weekend against Fiorentina. How does Spalletti do this? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I think it's sort of probably too simple to say, how does Spalletti do this even? Because I've had this conversation a few times with friends who are teachers and professors and people who sort of um, yeah are instructors. And what I've heard a lot is that um, peer groups are so important, like having a class where you have like two or three sort of influential kids who are well-motivated and also well-liked by their their fellow students can make all the difference to everyone around them. Suddenly you get the whole class is more invested in, in making that effort to learn. And not that professional footballers are identical to school kids, that's not what I'm saying, but I do think there's some truth in the fact that when you have a few very charismatic characters who are setting a standard and who are also really popular and who are also sort of enjoyed by their teammates, I think it can be transformative. And I think Victor Osimhen has been that to a big extent for Napoli. I think he's so, um, uh, what's the word, contagious in his energy, in the way that he plays football, in the way that he goes out there and attacks everything like it's the last ball he'll ever kick in his life and throws himself into situations, which you've talked about before, Andy, is almost a worry with him sometimes. You think how often he's been injured and you think sometimes you just want to sort of ask him to to, to to look after himself a little bit more but mm. he he brings that energy to the setting um and 
And I think when that's sort of coupled with his extraordinary talent and coupled with the extraordinary talent of a Kvitscha Kvaradskalia who comes in and, uh, um, you know, then sort of coupled as well with with a few other um, pieces within um, within the side as well. I mean, I think Giovanni Di Lorenzo has been probably underestimating his importance as the club captain who is just one of the most consistently productive right backs in all of Serie A it's not a sexy position we don't talk about right backs very much when they're not wing backs who get forward all the time but he's he's such a a really reliable stable presence and in some ways Mm. almost a sort of opposites captain with Insigne Insigne was brilliant and and also well liked but Insigne was a player who you could feel sometimes went up and down with his mood when Insigne lost confidence or or was going through a period of frustration it, you felt like that affected the whole team as well they would become uncertain they would have have a sort of these these I don't know these these psychodramas they would call them in Italy where they would um, lose their way and miss penalties and everything would, would go alright well they still miss penalties by the way but <laughs> but Di Lorenzo is, is such a stable figure and so consistent it almost reminds me of Javier Zanetti at Inter when you just like okay this side of the pitch is locked down and it's going to be seven out of ten every game and and I think that um that also is just quietly one of the components of this squad that doesn't get talked about enough. Is Napoli's team likely to be taken apart this summer like last year? Asked Gray on Twitter. Um a really interesting question. Um Aurelio De Laurentiis has already sort of set out his stall saying I'm not selling Victor Osimhen this summer. I think it's worth sort of going back to Edinson Cavani and that sale um, to Paris Saint-Germain because De Laurentiis definitely said, I'm not selling Edinson Cavani. And then it turned out that when the player has a will to do something and when the money is there, there comes a point where you accept it. Now, as we've talked about plenty with that sale and at the same time, Ezekiel Levetsi leaving the club, they didn't do it for cheap. They didn't do it for less than they wanted to. And and De Laurentiis used that leverage of I'm not doing this if I don't want to, to, to drive a hard bargain. But he still did the deal in the end. So are there going to be some departures? My money would be on yes. Um, but De Laurentiis is making the noise that no. So I guess, again, time will tell. Another one that's been pointed out in the squad, um, because in the case of Osman, there isn't a release clause to be triggered. So it's it's a harder sell and, and De Laurentiis really can do a, a hard bargain. As I understand it, Kim Min Jae, for instance, does have a release clause and he's attracted some interest. So if he gets the release clause triggered and he wants to go, it's going to be out of their hands anyway. Now, it's too early to say if that'll happen. I haven't got information that someone's got a bid ready to go, but he's the player who's attracted interest. So the possibility exists for sure. I think the real question is how does De Laurentiis deal with Spalletti because mm-hmm. we've we've seen uh, over the, the last few days that um, he's triggered his contract extension to keep him last year for the moment instead of negotiating with him for a new one uh, really you should be getting an extension and you should be getting a pay bump after the job he's done this year and yes I appreciate his team effort etc what Spalletti's done there is phenomenal nevertheless especially given all the stuff as we were saying that he was given to deal with off pitch that shouldn't really have been his remit at the start of the season. So I do wonder if to get ahead of the game, Di Laurentiis needs to sit down Spalletti, make him happy because that quells any potential 
for a similar type of unrest developing this season, uh, this season coming, doesn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a that's a really good point. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think um, it's it's a balancing act in all these situations. Um, I, I think what's unquestionable with De Laurentiis is that he has ambition to continue being successful, and I think he has shown the way, frankly, that Milan are now following and other clubs are following in being virtuous in running a club that does. I'm not saying it always turns a profit, but by and large doesn't sort of throw away money. By and large doesn't doesn't accept losses on its bank sheet um, in in a big way. I, I think he's done that while also producing consistently interesting teams that, while I, I keep saying it's not linear, have always felt like they're progressing in some way. Maybe not always, but in in the big picture, have always made the club feel like it's progressing. And and you know it's it's the move from. Eddie Reha, when you get promoted to Walter Mazzari, who takes him into the Champions League and, and plays against Chelsea in the last 16, to Rafa Benitez and this insistence that we're going to have an international manager who's going to bring in the big names like Higuain and Callejon, Albiol, to having then Maurizio Sarri, who brings in something different again, brings in this very distinct tactical idea and who's this up-and-coming, I, I guess, um, idealist in, in the world of football. And nearly winning the league under him, setting a points record. And then after that, you can still move on to Ancelotti. And there's all these steps. They've never felt like steps backward. Okay, sometimes the results are better, sometimes they're worse, but they've always felt like steps towards a new and better idea every time. And and I think that's what you'll see from De Laurentiis, whatever happens this summer. If players go, it won't be accepted as, okay, we've lost some players and now we're stepping backwards. It will be, we've sold these players and here's what's next. See, all of this conversation is leading towards the inevitable question, uh, which is, well, what happens now? It, was this a one-off? Was it a flash in the pan? Is this a Leicester City situation? Or will they be able to replicate this in the coming seasons, if not the next one? My question would be, does it really matter that much? Because, <laughs> does it matter? Uh, yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's, a, that's a genuine question. Because obviously they would prefer it to continue. And De Laurentiis has said, we're not going to stop here. We've got the Champions League to consider next. We're going to go on from here. And okay, that's a great starting position to have. But uh, I, I think there are other teams that are going to come back strongly. We It remains to seen, be seen what happens with... Juventus and of course they've got the um the retrial of, of of their case coming up before the end of the month, which could have a huge impact on the last couple of games of Serie A. But with Napoli, they've waited so, so long for this. I I think whether it becomes a dynasty or, or whether this is just it, I I don't think it's the end of the world if this just just was it. And you ask those people celebrating it now. Yeah. You know, if if we if we didn't win it again for another ten years, you know, all the second places in the world don't mean anything. All the Champions League qualifications in the world don't mean anything compared to this. Nikki, preach. I'm with you, Andy. I remember doing a a, a radio piece. Um, uh, it was in the BBC right after Leicester had won the league, and there was a a, a fan on and. And it was right after they'd won the league title and someone was saying, oh, can you go on and do it again? And he just said, I don't care. And I think that's, <laughs> you know, that's the right way to think about it. It's football. Enjoy the moment sometimes and, and worry about that next when it comes along.
So, Andy, where's Nikki? Where's Nikki? <laughs> Did you not pay her hotel bill? <laughs> dear, oh dear. She's only been kicked out of her room. Andy, lend her a fiver. <laughs> I, I feel responsible. I'm out of Euro notes, Dotton. <laughs> Oh, there you go. I had so a big where, weekend in Germany. Where is she now? We seek her hair. We seek her there. We say, where are you, Nikki? I'm in the downstairs of the same hotel. I'm just in this little cafe downstairs. So I'm sat there to finish up the show. I'm, I'm sorry, everyone. But yeah. I think I think uh, basically they said, you're not talking about Syria anymore. Get <laughs> that's out. That's it. They were like, that's the Italian football section done. No longer allowed. <laughs> you were not sporting an interscarf by any chance, were you, at the time? Anyway, it's great that you're still here. Uh, great that uh, we continue the conversation. There's one more topic to do on this week's uh, On the Continent, and that is to talk about France. What's going on there? First of all, Andy, we get the game of the season, and then arguably we have the end of an era in France as well to talk about. Yeah, we do. Uh, so uh, on Sunday, uh, Leon, who are... As, as we've been saying recently, engaged in that three-way battle to get a UEFA Conference League place. That's right. People somewhere do care about it because there are three really big clubs going for uh, the final European spot. Uh, Lille, uh, Rennes and um, Lyon all going for it. Now, because uh, Lille and Rennes had both lost over the weekend, Lyon had a, a great chance uh, against Montpellier on Sunday afternoon. They take the lead. They then go 4-1 down as Eliwahi of Montpellier scores all four. And you think, okay, th this is something we didn't see coming. And then enter, re-enter Alexandre Lacazette, who um, in between Dejan Lovren uh, getting one of the goals as well. Lacazette scores four, including a 100th minute penalty. That's right, the 10th minute of stoppage time penalty. Um, which was the very last kick of the game to give Leon a 5-4 win. Extraordinary piece of football. Also brings Lacazette level with Kylian Mbappe as Ligue top scorer with 24, which I'm sure a lot of Arsenal fans wouldn't have seen coming at the start of this season, Nicky. I think there's this impression that Arsenal fans all have horrible ideas about Lacazette, and I don't think that's true. I mean, he was... He was uh, um, player of the season one time when he was there he was a hard worker who gave a lot for the team the thing that was just so interesting about him was that he came from France with a reputation as an Arsenal fan of being the guy who just scores goals because that's what he did before he came to Arsenal and when he got to Arsenal he was kind of the opposite of that he was a selfless sort of all-around team striker rather than the goal scorer but I think um, he's obviously always existed in a slightly different reality in league gun to what he had in the Premier League that's it. Now, now he's the star again. He's got a lead from the front. Uh, I think in terms of image, he's important for Lyon as well because for them, producing their own players has always been important and bringing back him and Corentin Tolisso, two of the best academy products of the last decade and a half, who they have great pride in bringing home and who they feel have accomplished that top level to have them lead from the front and show where Lyon would go in the future. I think is is important for for them, but I mean, the bottom line is he's he's fished them out of some pretty awful situations this season. The fact that they are still uh, seventh in the league, which considering their budget is way below expectation, and where would they be without those twenty four goals? A lot lower, I think is 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 the answer. So something had to give, 
after a, a couple of disappointing seasons. I mean, it, they're looking as if they might um, finish out of the European places for the third time in, in, in four seasons, which is pretty unacceptable for them. Remarkably, in one of those other seasons, they reached the semi-finals of the Champions League, which is a, a, a bit unusual, having beaten Manchester City in the, in, in the quarters and eventually going out to Bayern, who, who, who won it in that, in that uh, 2020 final eight that they had in, in, in Lisbon. So something had to change and there'd been a takeover of the club by uh, John Textor, the American who already, his uh, Eagle Football Group already owns uh, Crystal Palace, Botafogo, uh, Molenbeek in um, Belgium. And um, to assure a a smooth changeover, they had got uh, Jean-Michel Olas, the previous president who had sold most of his shares to um, Eagle uh, to uh, sign a three-year contract um, for him to president the club in the in the meantime. It's come to an end pretty abruptly. So this game happens on the Sunday. On the Monday morning at 7.30 in the morning, Leon put out a statement um, with Olas having agreed to leave at four in the morning. So really... <laughs> Hot off the, 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 the presses. After 36 years, he is no longer the president. And you're talking about someone who's had a massive, massive influence on not just French, but European football. They were provincial also rans when he started. Um, they were a yo-yo team between the two divisions. and they, they had considerable debt. He made them profitable. He made them win seven titles in a row in Ligue 1. He um, made them regularly European, um, two Champions League semi-finals and a host of quarter-finals uh, into a new stadium as part of Euro um, 2016. It was launched as, but they've been working on it for a, a, a long time. We moved into a, a 60,000 capacity stadium. And I think, Nicky, one of the key points not to miss about Jean-Michel Olas is he's a huge champion of women's football. And under his tutelage, the Leon team has become the best club team that women's football has ever seen. Not at the moment, it's fair to say, but down the years they have been. They've won eight Champions League titles under him. Yeah, I was thinking as you were sort of recounting all that, Andy, of course, the men's team had that period, didn't they? From the sort of early noughties, I think they had about a decade of always making the Champions League. It lasts the knockout, at least the knockout yeah. stages, and then there was quarterfinal several times, there was semi-final. But the women's team has been... Um, this unstoppable juggernaut and has been not by accident that he's someone who has spoken so eloquently lots of times about sort of the importance and it's it's interesting the way he approached it because he's always had it as a very business-minded mindset he's a very business-minded individual I think I read once that he um sought emancipation from his parents to kick because he wanted to start a business he was always that way sort of inclined everything sort of had its reasons and its logic to it um and and he talked about this sort of wanting the women's team to be um, wanting to, to put money into that because he saw it as a, as a business that made sense. But then he also talked about doing some things that went beyond that, saying when you sort of make a business, you can think about economic value and economics is important. But actually some things have a value that aren't just economic, that are um, about values and about what's important. And if you speak to any of the, the sort of players who played under him there's so much acknowledgement of 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 who he is and and the way he sort of went to bat for things that should be fair stupid things things that 
I think now perhaps in, in the top level women's game we do take for granted but just stupid things like the facilities being up to scratch the kit not being um, something that's several grades below what the men were getting for him the wages couldn't be equal and he explained even that quite eloquently talking about wanting them to be but that in some degree you have to acknowledge the economic realities but um but facilities should be you know the the, the kit that they're using the equipment they're using the training facilities they have access to they should be the same for men and women and those things i think he he really set a tone for which has resulted in huge success on the pitch but which i think has also dragged up a lot of the other clubs in Europe that have looked around and gone, actually, this is the standard we should be setting. I've spoken about this before, but I, I remember quite clearly when um, I, I first arrived in, in, in France and going to see the first leg of them playing um, Arsenal in what would have been then the UEFA Women's Cup before it was the, the, the Champions League. They played it at the Gerland, the, the, the men's stadium at the time, and it attracted 20-plus thousand. And then the away leg against Arsenal was played at Borehamwood, as their games were now. And that they had some footage of him on Canal Plus getting off the, the coach and going, what the hell is this? <laughs> like, like looking at this non-league ground in, in, in front of him. And he was, he, was just, he was just really genuinely appalled. And I think when they won all those titles afterwards, the ambition to, to keep going with it, mm. to establish this dynasty, and that he shared in their joys, that he was part of the... The, the, the celebrations. When I look at the last couple of years and how he's kind of lost his way a bit, I, I do feel that Olas has made mistakes and then thrown other people under the bus. So Juninho, the greatest player in the history of the men's team, who was made sporting director, wasn't that good at it because he had no experience in the job. And then Olas sort of coated him off in public, which I, I thought was pretty awful. And then the fact that he delegated quite a lot of the running of the women's team to Vincent Ponceau, who is likely to leave now, along with Bruno Cheru, who's in, in charge of recruitment. Um, because uh, when they, when uh, Sarah Gunnarsdottir, uh, the Icelandic international, went off to have a baby, they tried to not pay her when she came back. Which, for a club that has gone so far, is just awful. The whole Jerome Boateng thing, when they signed Jerome Boateng, and he got convicted of domestic violence like less, against his ex-partner less than a week after signing for the club. They never said anything about it. And this is a, an institution that represents, as we said, the greatest women's team in, in the history of the game, in the history of the club game. And so maybe he's gone on paper because him and Textor don't quite see eye to eye and Textor wants to change the structure of the club. And Olas was quite resistant to that. Everyone's got their time. And I, th I think some of these mistakes that don't befit the best of Jean-Michel Olas in charge is something that had to be responded to. Does he deserve to go like a thief in the night is a question that I would ask. Or am I reading too much into this? He's I, still Henri president, isn't he? Yeah, he is. And um, he gets a 10 million payoff for not completing oh, his contract. Well, oh, that's, well. that's on top of the shares that he's already sold. And I think everyone has, has come out and said what an incredible president he's been and what he's done for the, for the city of Lyon in the last nearly four decades. All apart from Atem Ben Arfa, who posted a picture of him on, fell out with him spectacularly, of course, uh, several years as ago. As Ben Arfa does. As he does. He posted a picture of Olas on Instagram and it said, football won't miss you. Goodbye. Oh, for goodness sake. 
it is time to ask both of you for a Game of the Week recommendation. And thanks for the grammatical corrections on Game of the Week rather than Games of the Week, because we're asking each of you for a Game of the Week rather than a Games of the Week, Andy. And by the way, I did like your <laughs> Icelandic pronunciation as well. So, Nikki, first of all, do you have a Game of the Week for us? I, I've got a bit of a reach. Um with uh, my game of the week this time because listen i appreciate there might be other things happening elsewhere in europe but as far as i'm concerned the only story in in europe this week is the derby and so my eyes are going to be on inter and milan this weekend i think of the two of them milan have the more interesting tie their way to spezia spezia are currently 18th in Serie A, very much in a relegation fight they've three points to make up on verona now and milan have got this one game to resolve all of the problems we saw in that first leg, everything we talked about in the first section of this show. So they've got very little time to fix some big problems, to work out how they can win games with Rafael Leao, potentially still missing. I doubt he'll play this weekend. So that's where my eyes are going to be this weekend, Dutton. Well, that's a cracker. It sounds like it, given what it tiggies up uh, next week. How about you, Andy? What's the game of the week for you? Sunday night. And it's on uh, British telly for free. So I, I recommend if you're British based, love you, you tune in. Oh, a bit of free football. Um, it's the Barcelona derby between uh, Espanyol and Barcelona. Now, Barcelona winning the league is, is given, but Espanyol are battling, battling, battling to stay up. They're second bottom at the moment, uh, three points from safety and various head to heads. They need to go and beat Barcelona, which is not easy at all. Um, of course, there are still five games left of the season, but it almost takes us back to 2007. Espanyol, mid table, nothing to play for, um, went to Camp Nou and Raul Tamudo's equaliser right near the end, legendary Espanyol. Goal scorer, the Dries Mertens, if 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 you like, did the uh, Tamudazo, the the big Tamudo in um, scoring the equaliser against them right at the end, handing the title initiative on the penultimate day to Real Madrid, for whom Ruud van Nistelrooy had just um, equalised <laughs> at Real Zaragoza, and Real Madrid went on to win the league. And even though they didn't really gain anything from it. Espanyols still really celebrate that. Now, of course, the fact is, if Barcelona went and win the, lost this game, they'd still win the league. You think they're going to let, let Espanyol away with anything? No way. Absolutely They're, they're going to want to relegate them. Absolutely. So what are they, it's interesting. What, what are they going to eat, though, um, with their win or victory or draw or whatever it is? Well, look, I think uh, you're going to need all the carbs possible to stay with the intensity of this. So let's just start with some good patatas bravas with the, 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 the terracotta sauce, not yeah. with the coloured sauce, not the um, tomato sauce that they palm you off with in Valencia, which absolutely does my head in, okay. by the way. So you go so, for brown? So that brown sauce? nice, uh, no, 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 okay. the, the, the terracotta coloured one, the sort of spicy one that you get with traditional baralas. Um So I, I think you go with that. Um, maybe we will import a little bit of paella in a small dish. From, from Valencia. And the reason why I've left you till last, um, because I know, Nikki, that you will give us a culinary delight, particularly as you are in Italy, the place to eat. <laughs> Do you know, last night, um, 
when this show was tweeted out, someone was asking what the pairing was for the derby. And for me, the pairing for the derby was um, uh, a turkey sandwich with tartar sauce, curiously, provided by the um, the, the, the Milan's uh, press office, which actually was fine. But it did come with a Kinder Bueno for dessert. I, I actually wasn't <laughs> going to... I wasn't going to go lavish this week. Um, Stefano Pioli gave an interview with Gazzetta not that long ago where he was talking about favourite foods and apparently his favourite food is a very, again, carb-heavy, simple delight, bread and cappelletti al brodo, which is a, a very um, popular dish in, in Parma and Emilia-Romagna in general. It's a um, very little pasta, filled with, very little pasta, sort of filled pasta with um, ricotta filling normally and in a, a broth. And I think perhaps after the trauma of a 2-0 defeat to your neighbours, it's exactly what you need. is a nice return to childhood, get your bread and your cappelletti, recharge your batteries and then come ready next week to give it another go. Football Ramble is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.